Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. Secure Talk is brought to you by Adequest, your cybersecurity and compliance partner. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. And uh, today we've got a really special guest. I have to say, one of the probably the most impressive uh, background of any of the guests that we've had on Secure Talk. Uh, we have with us Dr. Eric Cole. Eric, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm totally envious of your home studio there. <laughs> like I said, I've been relegated to the kitchen because, uh, you know, everybody else has uh, prioritized my former workspace and, uh, you know, pretty much put me here. But uh, you've got a really nice setup there. Um, in addition to that, you have a super impressive background. I mean, you uh, were formerly a CIA hacker, and you know we have to talk a little bit about that, okay? <laughs> oh, of course. I know we're going there. I okay, we've got to come back to that. Um, you've also worked as the cybersecurity administrator to the Obama administration. Um, you're an advisor to, or have been an advisor to the Obama family, also to Bill and Melinda Gates. And I got to think that those people have some pretty hard-hitting security consultants working for them anyway. So the fact that you're in there adding value, I mean, I think speaks volumes to your experience. Uh, you've also worked with organizations like Lockheed Martin and the McAfee Organization. Um, you've also written several books. Most recently, uh, you, you wrote or published Cyber Crisis, Protecting Your Business from Real like Threats. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> Real threats in the virtual world. And we definitely have to come back and talk about that. Um, you are also the founder of Secure Anchor, um, which is a consultancy that advises companies on how to work safely on the Internet. So there's a lot there. OK, um, but let's let's jump in first and just say because I, I took a look at your profile and, and you did start your career off. It looks like at the CIA and, and, and you were doing some interesting things there. Tell us a little bit about that, because I think for a lot of people, that's kind of some really fascinating cloak and dagger stuff. Yeah, so so I actually started at the CIA as an intern at college. Okay. And I will tell you, they were the only people that were actually impressed with how boring my life was. Because <laughs> I, I was one of those rare folks. I, I, I didn't drink until I was 21. I, I didn't do any drugs. I didn't do any of that kind of stuff. So yeah, most of my friends in high school and college thought I was pretty boring and didn't want anything to do with me. The CIA thought that was pretty cool. So you were a nerd. You're a perfect nerd. Exactly. <laughs> I was the nerd, yeah. So, so I, I started working with them, and it was sort of an interesting journey because this was back in the late 80s, early 90s. And I remember sitting in a meeting, and if you've ever watched any of the Tom Clancy movies, it's called oh, The yeah. Bubble. Oh, yeah. It, it's sort of a half dome at CIA headquarters, uh, Langley, Virginia. It seats about 3,000 people. And we're in there with an all-hands meeting, and they're talking about some of these new internet-based systems and some of this new internet technology. And I'm in the back of the room because I'm a lowly, like, GS9 at the time, and, and I raised my hand. And I didn't know you're not supposed to ask questions, right? right. I'm used to college where you always ask questions. And my boss looks back and she's like, like going like this to me, like, put your hands down. And, and I'm like, oh, she's waving to me. So I'm waving back. And, and they call on me and I asked a question that changed my life. And the question was this, how do we know these systems are secure? And back then in the government, if you ask a question that nobody knows the answer to, you're volunteering to solve it. Right. So so they, they look back and forth and everyone's like, I don't know. So they're like, Eric, 
thank you for volunteering to solve the problem. And I'm like, wait, I, I wasn't volunteering <laughs> here. I was just asking the question. So I, I went back and for about four months, I figured there'd be some mathematical proof. There'd be some formula or some method. And I went to the orange book and the rainbow series and all those saying, okay, there has to be an answer. And what I realized is there's no way to prove a system is secure. Hmm. There's no way to verify or validate. The only way to test the security is by breaking in. Right. And that's what we now today call ethical hacking or uh, penetration testing or things like that. Back then we called it verifying and validating the security, but that's what began my journey of eight years of being a professional hacker for the CIA. That's, that's amazing. And, but back then there was no real playbook for this, as you've just said, right? I mean, it was like, wow, so good question. Now go, you know, go find the answer to your own question. So how did you come up with a methodology or some kind of process for, for doing that? So essentially what I did is I said, okay, let, let's break down this problem. And, and what I realized is if you want to hack or break into a system or compromise a system, there's really three components. There needs to be a visible IP. Okay. There needs to be an open port and there needs to be a vulnerability in the service. Mm -hmm. Now you could argue that there's advanced hacking methodologies. I wrote a 900 page book, hackers beware that there's a lot of complexity around it. But if you really want to drill down hacking, if somebody is going to break into a server now targeting clients with phishing, that's a different, different target. Right. But if we're talking about servers, yeah. if somebody is going to break into a server, there has to be an IP address that they can get to. Okay. There has to be an open port and there has to be a vulnerability in the service. So I sort of broke down this methodology, which sounds simple, but very effective. So when I went in and did hacking penetration, and even when our company does it today, we basically start off with a visibility map. I tell my team, listen, I want to find out all the IP addresses that are publicly registered to the company. And I want you to do a sweep to find out all the visible IPs. Then I want you to find out all the open ports. And then essentially hacking, penetration testing, whatever you want to call it, is nothing more than but exploiting each of the services, looking for vulnerabilities within each of those services. And to me, that's one of the pieces that are missing today with penetration testing or ethical hacking is most of these ethical hackers, they're all about getting in. And they all have their special little ninja tool, right? right. Like I, one of my friends, he's the master of uh, MITM, right? Okay. Person in the middle attacks. Mm -hmm. And somebody else is the master of buffer overflows. And they're like, I can get into any system with this ninja trick. Yeah, but you got in. But what if there's 30 other vulnerabilities that are higher priority? So to me, a lot of the penetration testing is a binary test. Can we get in? And that's silly to pay for because you always can get in. So what I developed was a comprehensive framework that will give a company full visibility into the exposures so you could prioritize and fix the ones that are most important. Excellent. And I, I definitely want to talk more about that. Um, but let me just go back to the your original uh, role when you were developing um, this kind of process or methodology. Did you did you find anything that raised any flags or alarms in, in, in those early days at the CIA? Did you say like, hey guys, uh, <laughs> this is something here that we need to fix? Well, well uh, remember, this is back in the 90s. Yeah. And, and, and back in the 90s, security or cybersecurity for that matter, I, I don't even know if it was a term in the definition, sorry, a definition in a dictionary right. at those timeframes because it was such a new area. So even though the government tended to have better security back then than the commercial. There was a lot of vulnerabilities. And one of the things I found is you can always get in. 
Right. And, and that's actually why after eight years of doing ethical hacking, I stopped doing it and switched to the defense. Because to me, offense is easy. Okay. If there's any functionality on the system, and here's something else I learned. I'm, I'm all about formulas and rules. Mm -hmm. One of the other things I learned is the only system that will be 100% secure is one that's buried in cement under the White House. Right. If there's any functionality, 100% <laughs> security is zero functionality. Right. If you have any functionality, there will always be security holes. So if you have a functioning system, you can always get in. The question is, how much energy and effort does it take? And then this is the part that I think companies still miss today. How quickly can you detect the attack? To me, when I define cybersecurity, mm -hmm. it's about timely detection and controlling the damage. That's to me what your measure of cybersecurity is. It's not preventing all attacks because that's naive, it's not possible, and it leads to this false sense of security. Well, we use this expression and we hear it a lot too, just assume breach, assume you've been breached, right? Um, and, and, and that's gonna add an extra layer of protection on a lot of things that you do, you know, for example, using multi-factor authentication and things like that. I mean, is that something that you kind of talk to your clients about as well? Exactly. I'll, I always tell them, listen, if you haven't detected an attack, it's not because it's not happening. Mm. It's because you're not looking in the right place. And one of my favorite examples of that is when we actually were allowed to travel, yeah. right? I sort of <laughs> back feel in like the good old days. <laughs> yeah, but back in the good old days when we used to walk to school in the snow. But, right. but back in 2019, <laughs> I was over in Saudi Arabia giving a keynote and my keynote was done and the flights at Saudi back to the US are at one in the morning. Mm -hmm. That's just how they fly. So I'm sitting in for the next presentation, which is a panel discussion. And the leader of the panel says, hey, can you introduce yourself? So the first person gets up there and going, I work for this big company, I'm the CISO, and we've had no attempted attacks or breaches oh. in over two years. Oh my gosh, and it was you're like, just like tempting, you're like just tempting and, fate. <laughs> just like, exactly, <laughs> and everyone's like, yeah, woo, they're cheering them on. And then the next panelist gets up, introduces themselves and sort of looks down and like, uh, we, we've detected three attacks in the last year. And there's a silent and like almost the mood of the room, like everyone wants to boo him. And I'll be honest with you, I'm sitting in the back watching this and it's the most galactically stupidest thing I've ever seen. The person who was that's arrogant- pretty, That's pretty say, stupid, galactically stupid. Yeah. That's pretty stupid. <laughs> yeah, galactically stupid, that's a high level. But, but to me, the, the person who was arrogant enough to say we've had no attacks in the last two years, I would fire them on the spot. Right. I would fire them on the spot for gross negligence. And the person who detected three attacks, I would promote them. But it was funny how our mindset still thinks that if you've had no attacks for multiple years, that's a good thing. And if you've had a breach, it's a bad thing. And we need to switch that mentality. If you're having breaches, but you're detecting them quickly and timely, that's good and that's what we're supposed to do. Now, of course, if you're a large hotel chain and you have a breach of 500 million records that you haven't detected for three years, that's a different story, right? right? But if you're detecting attacks within two or three days, and the damage is minimal, that's awesome. And you should be celebrated, not booed. Yeah, well, in, in attacks, in our, in, our, in our, the way we describe things, attacks and breaches are slightly different. We get hit, I mean, we're a relatively small company, but we get a hit all the time. Um, and, and hopefully we don't get breached all the time. But the, but the point is, is we, we're, you know, we want to see what's happening and we want to be aware. Um, I think it might have been in your book that you mentioned that um, a lot of organizations 
are typically, you know, often breached for two to three years before they become aware of that. Um, and why is that? And what are the hackers doing during that time? Uh, so the, the reason for that is uh, companies are focused mainly on preventive measures. Mm -hmm. They, they want to prevent, 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 prevent. And we sort of got this false mindset that, oh, if you have some firewalls and you lock down and you patch your systems, that you're going to be secure and no one's ever going to break into. So that's problem one. Problem two is our detection model, incident response, mm -hmm. is based on there being something visible. Right. So if you go back and remember when the I love you virus hit, Yep. Unless you work for a really screwed up organization where it was normal to tell your coworkers you love them. I mean, clearly <laughs> that was a visible sign. Right. If your house is on fire, the reason why people know it is because smoke is coming out of your roof. Right. So we have this mindset with incident response that when there's something visible happening on our network, we respond. And if there's nothing visible, we assume that everything's good. Well, today's attackers are stealthy targeted and data focused. They, they're, they're all about most of the attacks we see today are coming in under uh, SSL or TLS. They're fully encrypted. And because most organizations allow SSL traffic and they don't inspect it because uh, the technology is still fairly new to examine encrypted traffic, they just allow it through and assume it's okay. So because there's nothing visible, there's no smoke coming out of the roof, they just assume everything is good and everything is fine and ignore the problem. And to me, the real solution is we have to switch from reactive incident response to proactive incident response, which has the buzzword we sometimes call threat hunting. But what I always do with our clients is don't sit back and wait for the smoke. Assume the house is on fire. You just don't know it yet. And actively search for the attacker and search for compromise on a regular basis. Well, then, and how do you do that? Because, I mean, we typically, you know, we're looking for anomalous behavior, right? So uh, similar to what you were, you know, the, what you were describing earlier, the smoke, the signals, some, something is, is out of the ordinary is happening here. Um, but in the case of these stealthy you know, attacks, um, and oftentimes they're just biding time, poking around here and there, trying to, trying to find out, you know, wh where the global admin credentials are or where, you know, um, where the, the, the prized data is. How do you detect that? What do you do? So the first step is uh, the one commonality in almost all attacks that are going to cause damages are the command and control channel. Okay. That, that's where they're going to make an outbound encrypted channel, typically to an IP address or a location that they're normally not communicating with. So if you mm -hmm. just look at your outbound traffic and either put it through a proxy or geolocate it, on a map of the world, you can see it very quickly. This is one of our favorite exercises. I was just last week at a, uh, a medical facility where they do a lot of the COVID uh, validation and testing and other factors there. And I went in, I took their external traffic for 48 hours and I plotted it on a map of the world and I show it to the executives. And before I could say anything, their comment was, why is 30% of our traffic going to China and 20% going to Russia? We only do business within the United States. And yeah. within 30 seconds, we saw the problem. So it's not hard to find compromised systems. It's just people are not trained to look in the right place. And this trick that I've been doing for 10 years, I laugh because this is how they detected solar winds. 
Right. I mean, the, the big attack last year that uh, right now they're saying they were compromised for 16 months. Uh, this is not my first rodeo. I can guarantee it'll be over 30 <laughs> when all is said and done and the smoke clears. Mm-hmm. But that was something where finally a government agency looked at the outbound traffic mm-hmm. and they said, why is this traffic going to this location? And that's how it was detected. But to me, why isn't this common practice? Why aren't we monitoring and tracking outbound traffic? It's a simple, straightforward method. But everyone is so focused on inbound prevention that very few companies are really focused on outbound detection, and that's where the money is. That's <clears throat> that's a real paradigm shift. Um, yeah. But um, but I but I, totally appropriate. And uh, are, do you talk about that in your book? Yes. Yeah, so uh, cyber crisis. This that's my seventh book. Seven. And this one is really focused more. <laughs> you are a geek. Yeah. <laughs> exactly for business and executives. So mm. it's not a super techie book. Okay. So it's really focused more on asking the right questions. But no, that's one thing that I advise every executives to do is you shouldn't be technical. You shouldn't worry about false positives, true positives if you're an executive, but you should have a visibility map of where your traffic's going. So I talk it at a high level. If you wanna know specifically how to do that outbound monitoring the geolocation, that would be in my book, Advanced Persistent Threat, which is a more technical book where I break down the process in detail. Excellent. Well, okay, let's let's say that you, um, that you're, you're, you find out your business is compromised or you suspect it might be, um, what's the first thing that a company should do? I'm always about practical survivability. I'm big into mindset and being positive. So to me, the first thing you should always do is drink and pray, and maybe not in that (laughs) order. Sometimes you should pray before you drink. So, uh, but but, but all all kidding aside, uh, when you go in and detect that there had a breach, that the first thing you want to do is make sure you understand mm-hmm. how the adversary got in. To me, one of the biggest mistakes that companies make is they determine they've been compromised. They know that there's damage. So what do they immediately do? They pull a few systems, they disconnect systems, and they temporarily stop the adversary from being in your network. But if you don't know how the adversary got in, that means the vulnerabilities are still there. Right. So then they'll patch a few systems, adjust a few things, throw it back online, and then they're like, oh, we're great. What they don't realize is if an adversary gets kicked out of a network and the vulnerability is still present, they're going to come back but be even more stealthy. They're not going to get caught the second time. So you really have one shot at this. If you are able to catch the adversary, you better understand how they got in and fix the problem. Otherwise, they're going to come back in over and over and over again, and you're just not going to detect them. The problem, though, with this approach that we call watch and learn is it creates a liability exposure with with the company because essentially I'm going to corporate attorneys and I'm saying, listen, our client data has been compromised and my brilliant plan is to do nothing. Let the adversary (laughs) steal more stuff. And they're going to be like, what are you crazy? And it's like, but listen, we have two options. I can go in right now. I have no clue how they got in. And I can disconnect the systems and do a couple of basic things and they'll probably get back in and will be compromised for another three years. Or I can monitor, understand how they actually got in, have a little more damage, but then fix the problem correctly and make sure they don't get back in long term. 
And, and to me, that's really the correct approach. If you don't know how the adversary got in, you need to figure that out before you knock them out of your network. Otherwise, they'll come right back. Yeah, but what about eliminating the opportunity for some type of ransomware attack, right? Because, I mean, that's 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 a real threat these days, right? Okay, we know somebody has access. Um, and what are they? what's their end game? Maybe we don't know what their end game is, but we definitely don't want them to encrypt our system so we have no longer have access. So, I mean, do, do, you, do you take that into consideration at all i'm sure you uh, must I, yeah, yeah 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 so so absolutely you, you want to go in and when i say allow them to stay i mean you're still controlling and minimizing you might set up some vlans do some jails do some isolation but you really want to be able to figure out how they got in right now today though if we really look at cyber attacks there's there's two main targets they're servers and clients Okay. Servers, they're going after internet-facing systems to basically steal or exfiltrate data. So to me, the general rule is real simple. Any system visible from the internet is fully patched and never contains critical data. As crazy as that sounds, if that rule was followed, any server visible from the internet was fully patched and never contained critical data, the Marriott breach and all the other major breaches we saw would not have happened. Because they happened because you had internet systems unpatched with data that wasn't properly encrypted. So the good news today is today's attackers are not terribly sophisticated. So some of the basic measures will stop them. Client-based attacks is where your ransomware is happening. And that's because there's not really good endpoint security and they're able to take control of the system. So what I always tell all our executives and clients is most cybersecurity professionals tell you no. They're like, don't click on a link, don't open an attachment, don't do this, don't do that. One of the things I've learned from doing security for the Gates family and the Obama family is when, when you're one of the richest people in the world, you want a security person that says yes and tells you how to live your life and not interfere. If you go into the Gates house and you say, well, you can't do this and you can't do that, they're going to kick you out, right? So you got to figure out how to get creative. So what I tell executives is, listen, Click on whatever you want, open whatever you want, surf whatever you want. Just do it from an iPad. That's Don't it. do it from your Windows computer. Use two separate devices. And you can even ask my staff. I carry around either an iPhone or an iPad, and that's all my research, all my surfing, all my email. And then only when I need to work on reports do I go to my Windows system. And just building some simple disciplines like that, now I can click on whatever I want but contain and control the damage. Great advice. It's funny that you you bring up the example of, of, of um, having to say or wanting to say yes to your customers or your clients because you want to keep them as a customer or client. Yeah. Um, I recently heard a story or <clears throat> about Tom Cruise and uh, the stunt coordinator for one of the movies told him he can't, he couldn't do that. Um, and he ended up doing the stunt. And they said, how'd you do the stunt? And he goes, well, I got a new stunt coordinator. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm going to do it, right? So so yeah. we just I got to figure out the, the safe way to do it. And I think that's what you're talking about. Um, I mean, in this last year, because of all the craziness with COVID, uh, you know, you, and just a general trend before that anyway, but obviously there's been just, just massive acceleration for people working remotely. Here I am at home. I've got other family members doing their remote stuff here and, you know, billions of people across the, the, the planet are doing that right now. Um, and we have the prolifer proliferation of mobile devices. I mean, you just mentioned a couple examples there, your iPhone, your iPad, et cetera. 
Um, what kind of challenges does that present companies, and 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 what kind of you know advice? What kind of advice would you would you uh, would you offer? Yeah, to to me, it's you used the term earlier, paradigm shift. It, it represents a huge paradigm shift, right. where essentially we need to recognize that agno- location agnostic is the new normal. That you need to be able to work anywhere, any place, any time. And, and it's funny though how people don't recognize it. So I was uh, up in New York. I was one of my first trips in a while back in January, and I'm meeting with a CIO of a really large financial institution. And I asked him a simple question. I said, how many new offices did you open up in 2020? And he goes, Eric, we didn't open up any new offices. We closed down three offices. One of our offices is minimal activity. So we've really closed down offices. We didn't expand. I know where you're going with this. (laughs) And I said, how many people are now working from home that weren't in March, 2020. And he said, 33,000. That's 33,000 new offices. (laughs) Bingo, I said, you opened up 33. And and it's funny, because it's like, wait for it, wait for it. He's like, like, oh my gosh. (laughs) He he never understood that. And then he goes, Eric, he goes, when we open up new offices, we have a whole security suite team that we verify and validate. And he goes, and I didn't even realize that we've opened up these 33,000 offices and we've never checked, never validated, never secured. And most of it is fairly vulnerable. So to me, what we need to do is the, the biggest exposure and the biggest impact of the epidemic are these endpoints. Yeah. You have these unprotected endpoints, unpatched, outdated systems, w- w- wireless. I, I have three kids and they're amazing and they're super tech, but your wireless network and cybersecurity shouldn't be set up by a 15-year-old because my <laughs> son's number one priority in setting up a wireless network was how can he get maximum bandwidth for Fortnite? It wasn't how do we secure dad's information, right? right? So, so our IT teams, our teenagers are awesome, but they're just not trained in security. So what we're doing with our clients now is a three-tier architecture where one tier is the data tier in the cloud. So I know some security people don't. I'm a firm believer, put your data in the cloud. It can be private, it can be hybrid, it, it can be protected, but you gotta lock down and protect the data in one central spot. The middle tier is an authentication tier, where now you can do two-factor, you can do geolocation validation, you can do behavioral analytics, you can really protect secure lockdown. And then to me, the real trick is the client endpoint is a thin client, where now there's no hard drive, there's no operating system. So now every day when they boot up their system, you get a brand new operating system. Now it can be patched up to date secure. And even if you do make a mistake and click on a link, you're vulnerable for two hours, there's no data instead of two years. So to me, if I'm a CISO or advising CISOs or anyone in security, you gotta get those big fat endpoints that have four terabyte hard drives with crazy amounts of data that are outdated and unpatched, and you gotta get those replaced with thin clients where you control and manage the operating system, the configuration, and the data. Massive paradigm shift. I mean, it's happening, but it's a massive paradigm shift. And it's also a massive leap or in faith in terms of trusting these cloud service providers, right? Uh, because I want my files on my device, right? But do I want my files on my device? Uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah. but that's, that sense of control is, is, is I think, uh, really difficult for individuals and, and organizations to give up. Uh, but when you, you know, ex- you know put it in, in that context, it totally makes sense. Um, you work, you know, obviously with some some individuals. You, you mentioned a couple of the families you work with. You work with large organizations. Um, 
for both of them, what would be, I mean, you just gave some, some wonderful advice there. What's some additional advice that you would, you would say, hey, you're a business, here are some things that you definitely need to look at today, tomorrow, um, and the same with uh, individuals. To me, what, what it really comes down to is really understand what is the problem we're trying to solve. Okay. Because because a lot of times I'll run into organizations where they'll go in and and, and this was one of the uh, ones that happened with the Obama is he wanted to have a cell phone. Okay. Understandably, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it's funny because it's like, wait a minute, me, I, I used to be the president and I can't have a cell phone. <laughs> exactly, and, and here's where everyone missed it. Everyone was like, "Oh, if if he has a cell phone with his data and text messages and all this stuff, and it gets stolen, then that's going to be a big problem." And I'm sitting there going, "Wait a second, if we're worried." that somebody is going to get to the president and steal his phone. We got bigger problems, right? right? <laughs> no one is going to get to steal his phone. That's not the problem. Well, the problem there is the geolocation. Is uh, somebody Where is now, the president? Yeah, you, I, I could pinpoint because the satellites today are military grade that we're using for right. our cell phones. I can within two to three feet pinpoint his location and that could be very dangerous drone strikes or other right, factors right, right. there. So so to me, it was like, wait, you guys are missing the point. It's not the device that, oh, that he has that it's going to get stolen. It's the location. And I could talk about this now because it's after the fact. But but to me, what we did to secure his is actually use VPN and other mechanisms sure. to be able to mask the location. So he could still use the phone. He could still text. He, he could still text. <laughs> yeah. If you ping track to control them, it would show up as being in Texas or New York right. when he was really in Virginia or DC. So so to me, that's an example where a lot of times with security, we solve the wrong problem. We we have this misconception, like in a lot of cases, when I work with uh, utility companies, a lot of security people are like confidentiality, confidentiality, encrypt, 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 encrypt. If you're talking about nuclear reactors and critical infrastructure, who cares about the confidentiality? I could care less if somebody knew what the settings were for a reactor. What I care about is if you can take that sucker down or if you can alter the settings, sure. that's where it becomes problematic. So to me, I've come to places where you have these great security folks and they're trying to encrypt all the data in a reactor. And I'm like, you're fixing the wrong problem. So to me, what it really comes down to is what is the real problem you're trying to solve. And once you understand that, there's always a solution and there's always a way to solve it, but we're often solving the wrong problem. And that to me is the reason why companies spend $30 million on security and still get breached because they're checking boxes and buying devices. They're not implementing solutions to the real problems that they face. Well, what's your process for helping companies understand what is the real problem i mean because you know you can't just go in and ask them the question because they it's like they don't know what they don't know i mean they, they you know so how do you drill down on that and help them really figure out that you're you're doing the the right stuff for the wrong reasons or the wrong stuff for the right reasons but you you, you know what's how do you figure out what's the real problem i'll give you i'll give you the answer but i'll warn you it Hear me out because whenever I tell security people this, they always look at me like I'm crazy. And then once I finish the explanation, it makes a lot of sense. All right. When we start an assessment, and I just did an assessment last week, the first thing I do is I sit down with the CFO and I go over the company financials. And and at first, people are like, but but here's what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. What's the proper budget for security? It depends. It depends, right. <laughs> and, and, and what should I protect? It depends. So what I want to understand is first, 
how much money is this company making and what are their profit margins? Because if it's a $50 million company with 60% margins, it's a completely different security strategy than if they're a $5 million company with 10% margins. It's, it's gonna be, so you need to understand what are the assets you're protecting. Then I wanna understand how are they really making their money? Because a lot of times security folks will go in and they'll look at 20 servers and they'll treat them all the same and they'll patch them and everything else. If you have one business unit that's making 80% you want of the profitability, yeah. I want that, that server is gonna get a lot more of my attention right. than if it's a server that's responsible for 10 or 20,000 of revenue. So to me, we don't understand the organization and we're treating cybersecurity as a cookie cutter and that's where the problem comes in. So to me, I wanna understand the business and I always start with the finances because that will tell me, okay, what, what are they making? What can they spend? What's the tolerance level? What's the risk level? Because that's gonna dictate that. Then it's gonna tell me what all the critical assets are, what servers they locate. And then from there, I can plan out my strategy. Because right now, if I can go in and help them protect their most critical assets, that's what they care about. If I can make sure that all of their critical data that supports 80% of their revenue never gets hit with ransomware, they probably don't care if the yeah. other part of the, the system gets hit with it. So it's it's really understanding and delving in to the business side. And once you understand the business, then the cybersecurity gets layered on second. That totally makes sense. I um, How would you have the same conversation then for 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 individuals? I mean, I've got I've got the Fortnite playing teenager. Um, I you know I I'm using these apps that track my fitness records, and I know they can track wherever I go. It probably know my address because I you know take off from my front porch and go on my runs or my bike rides. I got you know we've 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 got our home Wi-Fi. Um, just like everybody else, what do we have to be worried about? What should be we so, thinking about? Yeah. So I, I look at everything as business. Mm -hmm. So to me, you have a business, right? You, you, you're, you're in partnership now. I, I know you're home, so I'll be careful. I, I would say you're the CEO, <laughs> but your spouse might think differently. Right. Uh, that, that they're the CEO, but, but you guys could be co-CEOs, right? <laughs> on a good day. On a, on, a, when, on, on a good day, right. <laughs> and and you know, your kids and everything else. So to me, it's the same thing. It's like, okay, what are the things that if they happened would be really bad? What are the things that could really ruin your family's day, years, months, years? So some of the things that come up are obvious identity theft, right? Uh, tax uh, fraud, things like that. So, so those are the obvious ones that people tend to think of. But the ones they don't tend to think of is what if your child or your son can't get into the college of his choice because of something he posted on social media? This has always been an issue, right. but especially last year with everything that went on in 2020, there were over 100 kids in the United States that had scholarships, full scholarships, full rides to top-notch colleges, and because of something they posted on social media three to five years prior, and sometimes they were just reciting lyrics of songs that were taken out of contact they were then not only had their scholarship revoked, but they were kicked out of their college of choice. So these are things that parents and teenagers need to think about. They think Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat are fun and great applications, but they don't realize if they say one thing wrong, 
it's going to last forever and it can come back in three to four years and they won't get accepted to their college of choice. So that's another piece when you're talking about individuals or homes, social media to me is the devil. I mean, it basically is recording our lives and anything we say or do can be used against us, will be used against you, and you will pay for that potentially for the rest of your lives. So I'm very clear with my children. I'm like, listen, I'm not gonna ban social media because I know if I do, you're gonna do it anyway. But let me, every week, I send them a real story of somebody who's screwed up their life because of something silly or stupid they said on social media. So to me, it's as parents, we need to do a better job of educating and protecting our children in cyberspace, because let's face it, when our kids were three or four years old, we talked to them about, don't talk to strangers, stranger danger, don't take candy, don't get in a car. I mean, we drilled that in our students, in our kids. And then what did we do? Let them go online. Here's a device, here's a device. (laughs) And we never gave them any education. The president doesn't get a cell phone, but you do, so. (laughs) Exactly, so go for it, exactly. Yeah, so so to me, that's probably the biggest dangers that I've seen. So let me, you know, I'm gonna actually make, make my my youngest uh, watch this uh, part of the of the of the uh, the discussion but let me ask you a couple things um one do you have a source for that that the story that you said that over 100 kids lost their full ride scholarship because i think that's a that's a cautionary tale right there and and that, you know i i would want to sh- share that with my kids and and have them share it with their friends um i also think that you know sometimes god i mean what, what kind of I don't know what these kids posted, but sometimes I have to wonder, you know, are we being a little bit hard on these kids if they posted something when they're 14 years old, um, the lyrics of songs? I mean, so that's that brings up a whole nother conversation. But like you said, you know, I'm thinking about protecting my ID or my, you know, my my bank account information. We got to be thinking about, you know, losing the full ride, not that not worried, <laughs> not worried or, yeah. or, or other things. Right. Yeah, so or, or even if you didn't have a scholarship. Yeah. But just but you, you, can't get get you can't get accepted. You can't get accepted. Ruins your life. Or somebody, yeah. or three or four years later, somebody posts or reposts something that you did, and they do it out of context in an unflattering light, and it's just like all of a sudden you're the bad guy or girl or whatever, right? So that's a, a huge potential um, issue. Yeah. So and, I, and real quick, I, I do have a link I can send you. Yeah. But but one of the things I recommend and have your kids do this. Yeah. Is just go to Google. Yeah. And just type in college students kicked out because of social media posts okay or or inappropriate social media posts of college students and you would be shocked it's pages upon pages of these cases that are happening and like i said they've been happening for five years but they really surged in the last 18 months that's uh yeah scary scary stuff hey um i just a couple more questions and we can wrap this up what um what advice would you give to cybersecurity professionals or who want to up their game or advance their career um, or people who are looking to move into the cybersecurity space? Obviously, reading one of your nine books would be a good start <laughs> um, or maybe all of them. But, but what, what other career advice would you offer? Probably the biggest one would be experience, experience, experience. Don't worry about the money. If, if there's good experience, take it. Like I, I was giving advice to a 23 year old that wanted to get into cybersecurity. And I said, start going to all of these dentists and doctors offices and offer free services. Say, wow. listen, I, I normally would charge, somebody would normally charge you $5,000. 
So if I go in and do some free services for you, can I use you as a reference account? And you know what his response to me was? Why would I do work for free? And I'm like, you got to play for the long haul. I said, you know how many favors I cash in on right. now? Like I, one of my business leads, I, I was on a call and he's like, Eric, I don't see that on our account. I'm like, oh, I'm not charging him for that. And he's like, well, why would you do that for free? I'm like, because this guy is in a private equity firm. He's worth billions of dollars and he knows 300 different CEOs. Why wouldn't I do that? Right. So, so, so to me, we sort of have this impression that we tend to want to get paid and think we're worth more than we are. Get the experience. If it's free, if it's bartering, whatever it is, experience is what matters in cybersecurity. And once you get the experience, then the jobs and the money flow a lot more freely. And this 23-year-old, by the way, that's excellent advice, but this 23-year-old just got out of college and probably spent you know, 150 grand on college, or his parents did. And yeah. uh, he wasn't getting paid for any of that, right? Yeah. <laughs> and now it's, uh, so no, I totally, you know, internships, anytime they could. I, I tell people, like, don't, don't worry about your starting salary in the beginning. Get that experience. I think that's it's great advice. So totally align with you on that. Um, another s similar question is, what resources uh, do you use to keep abreast of the latest threats and technologies, et cetera? Uh, uh, two, two things. One is uh, I do a weekly podcast. Okay. And, and what I find is if you're putting out content, you're going to make sure you keep your expertise up to date. Sure. So I, I'm always listening. I, I'm a big fan. I get up at five o'clock every morning and I hit the gym. And for 50 to 60 minutes in the gym, I'm just listening to different cybersecurity podcasts, webinars. I'm just getting different perspective. I'm always learning, always learning, always reading. I tend to read one book a week. And so the trick is just, just pick up different books, different methods, uh, and start reading and always learning and getting different angles and then share that information with others. One of the challenges I give to everyone who works in cybersecurity is twice a week, I want you to put out a five-minute video. I, I want you to just take out your phone wherever you are mm -hmm. and 10 a.m. on Tuesday and Thursday, create a five minute video and put the content out there. And they're like, but Eric, what if it's not good? What if it's this? Make it Let me good. Help you out <laughs> when you first start, do, I look at some of my videos from 20 years ago. They were yeah. awful. When you first start doing content or videos, it's like riding a bike. You're going to stink. Right. They're going to be awful. But that's the way you get better. So to me, by reading and learning whenever you can and then sharing the knowledge with others is critical. And the other piece of advice is ask people for help. You would be amazed of how many people out there wanna help you, but you're afraid to ask. And I call this my Richard Branson story. I talked to Richard Branson probably once or twice a year. Mm -hmm. Now, here's how it happened. I sent him an email. And I sent him an email, but here's the difference. I didn't send him the email that everyone always sends, which is, Will, will you father my children or, or can you adopt? Like some stupid thing. I, I wrote him and said, hey, uh, Sir Richard Branson, I respect your work, but I noticed that you started multiple billion dollar companies simultaneously. I'm told by a lot of my advisors, you should only start one company at a time. And I was interested for some of your advice on how I can go in and scale multiple parallel industries simultaneously. Within 24 hours, I got an email. What's your phone number? I'm free for the next 30 minutes. Wow, I, I that's send impressive. Him my cell phone <laughs> and he calls me. And after he gives me some advice and we talk, I said, I got to ask you one question. Why did you call me? I'm sure you get hundreds of thousands of people. He goes, Eric, 
you were the only good email response I got in the last 30 days. He goes, very few people ask me for advice. Many people contact me for stupid reasons, but very few people ask me for advice. And I always told myself that because I was helped during the way, if somebody really wants genuine advice, I will always help them. So we often think that there's people out there that aren't going to help us and we're afraid to ask and we're afraid to ask for advice. Most of these people want to help you if you actually ask good questions. So don't, now I'm not saying to reach out to Richard Branson, but I'm saying uh, if there's a CEO or a CISO or somebody that you know and respect, reach out to them, ask them for advice, and you'd be amazed of how many of them will help you at no cost. That's that's some amazing advice. And I, I don't have a, a story that can compete with that, but I've, I've emailed a couple uh, high-profile people in the past and was really surprised, like uh, Noam Chomsky, for example. Uh, I sent him an email and it was literally like within the next day he responded and he took my email very seriously and, and gave me a very thoughtful response. And I was like, wow, that's that's pretty cool. And so I I, I, I don't know if I can agree with you, but uh, but it, I think it's really great advice to go out and ask people for help. In fact, I think Ben Franklin said, if you ever if you ever want to make a friend with somebody, ask them for a favor or ask them to borrow something. Because when somebody invests in that relationship, then they built yep. that bond with you. So anyway, hey, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, we could probably go on for a lot, a lot longer. I know you got other stuff to do as well. Um, let me ask you, if people wanted to follow you, I don't, I, you said, I don't know if you do social media, but you know, I, I, you're on LinkedIn. I know that, but uh, I, I don't know if you have a website. You, you said you had a podcast. Talk a little bit about different ways that people could follow you um, and possibly engage with uh, with your firm. So we have a, a podcast on YouTube. So if you just go to D-R-E-R-I-C-C-O-L-E, Dr. Eric Cole, mm-hmm. uh, and it's called Life of a CISO. Okay. And we do that every single week. And then I produce five five-minute videos every week that we post one a day. So LinkedIn uh, Instagram, Facebook, any of those. If you just go to Dr. Eric Cole, I use social media only for business. You won't find anything personal, but for business, Dr. Eric Cole, uh, you'll find all my content out there. And if you'd like to, uh, find out more about my company, secureanchor.com. And if you're interested in becoming a CISO, I have a CISO certification that if you go to secureanchor.com slash CISO, you can actually get some free content and sign up uh, to get a consultation with one of my team members. That is awesome. And I will put all that information in the uh, the description to, for this episode, uh, both on, uh, it'll be on iTunes and a couple other uh, podcast channels, but also on YouTube as well. So thank oh, you. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed this. And uh, again, I'm, I'm envious of your of your home studio. There. <laughs> You've given me some ideas, you know, but uh, really, really great, uh, great show. And uh, thank you again. You take care. Thank you for your time. And it was my pleasure. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance.